The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Goodnight Maryland Radio with your host, Nina Bosky. It's been more than 50 years since the tragic death of one of Hollywood's biggest stars at the time and in history, Marilyn Monroe. Nina seeks to uncover the life and death of this legendary star as it coincides with the pre-production of the feature film, Goodnight Marilyn. You'll get a chance to question, explore, and discover the secrets surrounding what really happened that fateful night back in 1962. Let's start the conversation. Here is the host of Goodnight Maryland Radio, Nina Bosky. And of course, she was supposed to take a few every night. Uh, and, but even if she took all at once, it's problematic that that was a, a fatal dose. We try to keep it down uh, and, rather, and give her the Nimbutor more frequently in smaller amounts. Because I happened to talk to her on the phone that night, earlier in the evening, and she was happy in an manic phase. So I thought her mental state was good. She sounded cheerful. Apparently something happened to suddenly depress her. Peter Lawford got a call from Marilyn, and she was mumbling. Apparently she was going under from the pill she took and perhaps was calling him as, as a cry for help. He didn't run over. He called. He was the one who then called Mickey Rudin to tell Mickey Rudin that he'd had this call and Marilyn sounded funny and would Mickey check, and that's when Mickey called the housekeeper. Dr. Greenson got there first. She was dead when he got there. And I went into the bedroom and made sure she was dead. There was some rigor mortis, yes, but it wasn't extreme yet. I suspected that she'd been dead at least a few hours. I believed she was in a manic phase and that something happened to suddenly depress her and she grabbed pills there. She had plenty of pills at this bedside. I think she was suddenly depressed, and in that sense, it was intentional. Then, I think she thought better of it when she was felt herself going under because she called Peter Lawford. So, while it was intentional at the time, I do believe that she changed her mind. At the side of her bed, there was a lot of secondol, which I had never given her. Also, the autopsy showed that her liver had a lot of chloral hydrate. I never gave her chloral hydrate, and I don't think any doctor in the United States gave it to her. She must have bought it in, in T1. Wow. Well, there you have it. Uh, that is uh, Dr. Hyman Engelberg, Maryland's main internist physician, who prescribed most, if not all, of her medication. Good morning, everybody, or good evening, depending on where you are in the world. This is Goodnight Maryland Radio, and welcome to the show as we explore the investigation the life and the movie all surrounding Miss M.M. herself. Well, as Goodnight Maryland fans, we're growing around the world each and every week. And we do have some shout-outs this week. Samuel from Claremont, California. Jeannie from Reno, Nevada. Charles from New York. Uh, that's Manhattan. Christine, I hope I'm saying this from, from Noosa, Queensland, Australia. Kira from Garzon, Uruguay. 
Malvina from Samara, Russia. Lynn, who is calling, or not calling, but uh, shouting, uh, we're doing a shout out from the Twin Cities area in Minneapolis. AG from Tokyo, Japan. Delilah from Washington, D.C. Shankar from Mumbai, India. And Ernst from Hamburg, Germany. Hello, Maryland fans. And it's because of you and this story that we're shedding some great light on this mystery that's been haunting us for over 53 years. Well, good night, Maryland's radio t- uh, topic today. Celebrity. Marilyn and the Doctors. The panel is back. Gary Vitaco Robles, Leslie Kasperowitz, and Mary Jane Gray. We also have April Via Via on with us as well. And we'll discuss the Doctor's role in Marilyn's death on the heels of Prince's passing and other high-profile celebrities who have died as a result of the overdose. It's an important part of this case to really examine how or if the doctors may be responsible for MM's death. Also, we have a special guest, Dr. Scott Bond, criminologist and suicide expert. will add some valuable insight in the show coming up in just a moment. So here are some of the questions that we are asking ourselves. And this is something that I think we, we really do need to ask ourselves. Back in 1962, it might have been a different day, but it's 2016. And so if we apply the same kind of logic now that we know better right it doesn't mean that the doctors back then didn't have a responsibility so here are some of the questions why did dr engelberg lie and say he never gave her chloral hydrate when there was proof that he prescribed it if not only months days before she died we have prescription sheets we also have bills charged to her estate two Why did Eunice Murray, M.M.'s housekeeper, know that Marilyn sometimes takes takes too much medicine and then never checks on her when they know, when she knows that she was there that night for that very reason? Okay? Number three, why is every other celebrity overdose labeled an accidental overdose and Marilyn's death a probable suicide? There's no suicide note. There's no, there were multiple drugs found, okay? And Dr. Cyril Weck said there's only five boxes, and probable suicide is not one of them. They wrote it in, all right? So that's another question. Fourth question, did Dr. Greenson know exactly how many drugs Marilyn was taking? And if so, did he allow her to be, why did he allow her to be pres- prescribed over 1,200%? There was 900 pills prescribed with 700 of them being sedative, sedatives in the last two months. I don't know about you. It doesn't add up. Why did Dr. Greenson call Dr. Engelberg before he called the police and paramedics? And why did Dr. Engelberg call the mortuary and not the coroner first? These are all questions and more. I know you guys have more questions as well. This season, we are taking an in-depth look at what really is going on as we dissect the 1982 DA report. This is season three. There's a lot of information in that report, but there isn't really a lot of information, and it's a little murky about what exactly is going on with the doctors and her medication. They did a really good job, I think, in really uh, looking through the pathology, but not necessarily a great job in looking at the doctors and the medication. And so when you look at, you know, that era and the sign of the times back in 1962, 
celebrity overdoses were not necessarily uh, brought to light. It wasn't the uh, epidemic knowing that it is now. So does it mean, though, that the doctors were not part of the responsibility for Marilyn, especially given what they knew about her vulnerabilities? Again, we have a lot to cover, and as we get into the responsibilities the doctors play in a person's death when they are overprescribing medicine. But before we get into this week's show, I have some special people to thank. Randall Libero, our executive producer. I also would like to thank Voice America Radio Network's Mike Surgit, our engineer. Jennifer, who is our social media person. And, of course, our panel, Good Night Maryland fans, like to thank all of you. And I also want to just make sure that you guys, especially with this show... Uh, that if you do feel passionate about what we're doing, one of the things that we'd like to do is overturn the coroner findings very similar to what happened with Natalie Wood. Um, it, 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 we have enough proof right now, and we'll certainly explore more of this, this show, uh, if it really warrants overturning the coroner findings, not to probable suicide, but to accidental or probably even right now undetermined. Not talking about anything malice right now. We're just talking about what we do know for sure. So if you'd like to, go to the Goodnight Maryland uh, website. You'll click on the petition tab on the top uh, right and go ahead and sign the petition. Please, please, please um, tell your friends about it. It's an important cause because this is part of our investigation. Also, we have uh, our conference coming up. The Truth Will Set You Free, the real-life investigation about Marilyn Monroe's death, September 23rd through the 25th at the Roosevelt Hotel in Los Angeles, and we'll be giving you more details in the coming weeks. We had a thought uh, from a a listener, and I want to be able to uh, share all the different sides, because this isn't just... uh, you know, uh, experts and people coming on the show and talking about their opinions and and uh, stated facts. And sometimes I may get passionate about something, and I'm trying to be as as uh, uh, you know not coming in with the agenda with with the truth. And I think that he brings up if I want to play do- uh, doctor doctors uh, devil's advocate that uh, he brings up a lot of good points. This is Don from Memphis, Tennessee. He wrote in that about 34 minutes into last week's show, Nina questioned why Dr. Greenson would call Dr. Engelberg. Why was Engelberg called? Could Greenson have pronounced her dead? Nina pronounced Greenson's actions as a weird thing since Dr. Greenson as an MD could have declared Marilyn dead. Perhaps depending on California law, might have been different, or maybe that's what I had meant. However, Nina seems convinced that the two doctors were up to no good, which may be true to a certain limited extent. But considering the medical relationships that each had with Marilyn, her status and her fame, I can certainly understand why Dr. Greenson wanted to have his treatment partner present, certainly before the police were called. Additionally, I suggest that Dr. Greenson was not her physician of record and probably believed, I'm speculating of course, that a death declaration by Dr. Engelberg was more appropriate considering the circumstances. Certainly had Marilyn died in an emergency room or while she was in the hospital, Dr. Engelberg probably wouldn't have not been called or declared her dead. To me, though, calling Dr. Engelberg is not a weird thing. The weird thing is the amount of time that passed before the three attendant persons formally notified the police. 
Additionally, the declaration that Marilyn's death was a probable suicide may be unusual, but not necessarily inappropriate. Probable means likely to happen, or to be true, but not certain. Considering Marilyn's history with suicide attempts and her frequent expressions of wanting to die or living in misery, could easily conclude that she probably killed herself, despite the lack of certainty. And I goes on to say, but I just, I think that he's making a good point from the standpoint of the other side of the debate. So with that said, uh, let's get this wonderful show on the road. I would like to introduce my first guest who is a wonderful colleague and he's a good, good friend of mine. His name is Dr. Scott Bond. He's a criminologist and also uh, he is a suicide expert. He is certainly writing a book on suicide. He's part of our investigation team. He's a professor at at Drew University. He's also a critically acclaimed author, public speaker, media expert, and commentator. Professor Bond examines and explains criminal behavior and complex motivations of criminals. He offers insights into various types of crime, including white-collar, organized crime, bullying, domestic violence, sexual assault, and serial homicide. Dr. Bond has made an extensive study of suicide, which is dramatically on the rise in the U.S., The tragedy of suicide has touched his life personally, and he will offer some important new perspectives on this growing and social problem in his forthcoming book titled Suicide is the New Murder, Anger Turned on Oneself. He's a commentary. He's frequently in the New York Times, the headline News New York, uh, WSJ Live, Huffington Post Live. He he writes a popular blog, which we're going to talk about today, Psychology uh, Today, called Wicked Deeds. He's attracted nearly one million readers, and he's appeared as an expert analyst in A&E's documentary, The Long Island Serial Killer. So with that said, I'd like to bring on Scott Bond. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Nina. It's great to be here again. Well, I'm, I'm glad to have you during uh, this time because it just happens to be that it co- correlates not only with your article but with yet another uh, celebrity that uh, has passed away due to an overdose of some kind. Uh, your your uh, Psychology Today blog says prescription ju- drugs and malpractice, a lethal combination, unethical doctors enable their drug-addicted patients. Uh, bringing up Prince, Marilyn Monroe, Elvis Presley, Michael Jackson. I put in Heath Ledger. You know, uh, we also have Philip uh, uh, Seymour Hoffman, Whitney Houston. I mean, the lo- the list goes on. Uh, why why do you think this is happening, and why do you think this is uh, coming to the light so specifically today? Well, it's uh, it's a growing phenomenon. Nationwide, um, I mean the uh, the the overdoses uh, deaths every year from prescription uh, drugs, painkillers like oxycodone and Percocet and Vicodin are far far greater than deaths from street cr- drugs like cocaine and and heroin. Um, you know the, the the mythology is that that people die largely from overdoses of street drugs when that is just absolutely not the case. Tens of thousands of people are, are dying every year, and the numbers are growing as a, as a direct result of these powerful, powerful opiates um, like uh, Percocet, which appears to be the drug that uh, killed Prince. And as I mentioned in my article, Nina, 
it, it, only when somebody like Prince um, or Marilyn Monroe uh, dies of, of, a, of an apparent drug overdose does this really become a, uh, a focus of national attention. And it's because of their celebrity that, that this happens. And, and of course, these, it's a tragedy, but these tragedies are occurring hundreds and thousands uh, every, every day. So it's, uh, it's part, it's just the tip of the iceberg of a, of a, of a terrible national epidemic. And it's it's interesting you say that between Marilyn Monroe and Prince because we have the the decades between them and yet the same issue uh, keeps coming back full circle. Back in 1962, you know we have to we have to uh, put into uh, consideration where the doctors were at the time, what they knew about compared to here we are in 2016. But as you're talking about this, it it doesn't seem to be getting better. It seems to be getting worse. Right. Well, it is. It's getting, it's getting much, much worse. And these, you know, drugs, these new advanced opiate drugs like, like Vicodin and Percocet um, uh, that are, you know, far more powerful in all likelihood than the, than the drugs that killed uh, uh, Marilyn uh, were just not even available then. So that's one of the reasons that, that it's happening. These powerful drugs that are, I mean, it's just another form of heroin. I mean, that's really what, what uh, uh, Percocet and Vicodin and Oxycontin are. Um, they're readily accessible. Um, and as someone, you know, I think you know, Nina, I'm I'm uh, been struggling with um, uh, a, a problem with slip discs in in my neck. It's extremely painful, and the first thing that doctors want to do is prescribe you these powerful and very very addictive drugs. So yeah, it is it is a growing problem. Well, and that's I think that's the challenge here because you you know if you think about it, it's acceptable. So if I'm uh, taking a Percocet because you know what my back is out, right, or or something you know has happened to me um, because it's prescribed, I'm going to tell you. But I'm certainly not going to sit there and share to somebody over coffee. Oh, and by the way, I just uh, had a you know shot up of uh, heroin or cocaine, right? So it's it's kind of interesting that you're talking about it this way because. I think that's where the challenge comes in 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 bringing more awareness uh, to this right now, especially in lieu of what's happening with uh, you know Prince and the investigation. Very very similar if you think about it, and what happened uh, you know back in 1962 with Marilyn. Investigations, I have a feeling, are a little bit different back then than they were or, or how they are today. Scott, I'd like to, because we have to take a quick break, and I know the panel has a question for you. I'd love for you to stay on a few more minutes with us if you can um, and just talk a little bit about the responsibility you think the doctors have, and we can uh, get a couple more questions in. You're listening to sure. Goodnight Maryland. Good. Uh, you're listening to Goodnight Maryland Radio. I'm Nina Bosky, and we are talking about celebrity. Marilyn and the Doctors. Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. He'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. 
The Voice America Live Events page is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Goodnight Marilyn Radio. Help us explore the mystery that is and was Marilyn Monroe. Call into our program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to MarilynLiveTalk at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here was a beautiful woman, symbol of uh, attractiveness, and she did not have a date for Saturday night. Monroe liked the feeling of being um, under the influence of the sleeping pills. She, it gave her a woomy, toomy feeling that she liked. I speculate that she was feeling depressed and abandoned. And in that feeling of being depressed and abandoned, decided to take the pills. And in her mind was the feeling that for sure she wouldn't be away from the feeling of loneliness and abandonment. And in her mind was the knowledge that it could kill her. And in her mind was the knowledge that she might be rescued. And in her mind was the wish that somehow her life would change. Welcome back to Goodnight Maryland Radio. With me is the panel, uh, Leslie Kasperowitz, Mary Jane Gray from Immortal Maryland, best-selling author and Maryland expert Gary Vitaco Robles, icon the lifetimes and films of Marilyn Monroe, April Via Via, who does some wonderful research uh, and also part of Immortal Maryland and is actually writing a book that we're going to have to find out more about. But with us is special, go- uh, special guest, Dr. Scott Bond, who is a criminologist and suicide expert. And before the break, I wanted to ask him a, a question about uh, the doctors. Uh, in the mm-hmm. case with Marilyn, Scott, what do you think is, um, do you think they have accountability given everything that we know today? Well, I, I think any doctor uh, has a, a certainly accountability. And, um, and the, the, you know, a doctor can become very easily an enabler, particularly with a high-profile uh, an important celebrity client. And, I mean, the most extreme case I can think of was Conrad Murray, who was the personal doctor, you know, to Michael Jackson. He was essentially his live-in drug dealer. Um, he gave Michael any, any drugs that he, that he wanted, and he received a couple million dollars a year in compensation to do it. So he, he became his, you know, his primary enabler. And it's quite possible that doctors with Marilyn were just trying to please her 
And if Marilyn was a drug addict, and I, and I, I can't say for sure, I don't know enough about her history to say, but, but, but if she was addicted to some of these drugs, then she may have been begging for them. She may have been begging for prescriptions um, for things to take away her pain and, and to, to calm her down and, and help her sleep. And so they, it may not have been uh, anything deliberate or, 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 you know, any conspiracy to harm her, but simply uh, enabling her. So, but, but, but nevertheless, they have accountability because Michael, uh, in Michael Jackson's case, Conrad Murray was found uh, guilty of negligent uh, homicide and served several years uh, in prison as a result of it. Yeah, and now we have the investigation into to Prince's death, which uh, you know is is uh, raising another uh, some more warning warning flags. I'd like to uh, just play a clip from last week's show on Dana. Um, she was with us, Dana Kent, who is the co-creator of the Investigation Room, the television show, but probably more importantly, right now coming up to the conference, uh, the Real Life Investigation, and she was on with us last week and was talking about a point about uh, Eunice Murray. So let's play that clip if we can, Mike, and uh, and then we'll go right into the Eunice Murray uh, of what she's talking about and hear specifically what Eunice Murray had to say. The events of the previous day have never been satisfactorily pieced together. Certainly her psychiatrist visited her and it's been rumored that Bobby Kennedy did too and that she had dinner with him. But Mrs. Murray, who was with her all day and indeed discovered the body, denies this. Monroe was found with a telephone lying beside her on the bed. And there's a theory that realizing she had overdosed, she tried to phone for help. But why should she do that with Mrs. Murray there in the house? According to Mrs. Murray, she'd been quiet and subdued all day, and some people have seized upon this as an indication that she was depressed enough to kill herself. I couldn't, as a layman, couldn't describe her as depressed. But I know she had many worries, and this particular day she was not lively and enthusiastic. She was very quiet. Was she in the mood of a person who would later deliberately take her own life? I doubt that very much. And she had told me that one of the very first things to warn me, that if she takes sedation, which she did every night, sometimes she's apt to forget and would take a second dose too soon. And this is what she had to be very careful about. So that was the first thing that I was concerned about after she, she died, that that probably had happened when she went to the telephone. And, and, Mike, if we can play Dana's question, because I thought that was a really good question, if we could go ahead and uh, play that clip, that'd be great. I've been watching an interview with Eunice Murray, and she stated very clearly that she thought that this was an accident because the fact that Marilyn, on a regular ba- basis, had asked her to monitor her intake of meds. Basically, yeah. I'll just tell you what it said. Um, she had said on, on this clip that, you know, I believe that this is an accident for sure, uh, Marilyn, on a regular basis, asked me to uh, monitor her intake because she had said, meaning Marilyn had said to her all the time, that sometimes I forget that I take things and that I take more than I'm supposed to and I don't mean to. And she clearly stated that on an interview. So when I look at the coroner's findings, I was curious from a coroner's standpoint, and this would go back to uh, actually one of the pathologists as well, how much is that taken into account? Somebody that's there with her on a daily basis is asked to monitor her intake because when she takes it, she forgets that she takes it and also says that she sometimes takes too much and doesn't mean to. The accidental aspect of it to me is absolutely more on the table than anything. Forget it, regardless of everything else that gets proven in them. And that's Scott. why I find it shocking still 
that a probable suicide was a determination. So, Scott, given what uh, Eunice said, you heard Eunice uh, specifically say it in Dana's uh, question, what are your thoughts on that, given the responsibility factor, not just from the doctors, but the people around her? Sure, sure. Well, um, her, you know, her housekeeper is a, uh, a layman and obviously really uh, had a you know, strong personal relationship and you know, very much cared about her, maybe even loved her, and wanted to do the right thing. And she certainly is not an expert in either uh, the taking of prescription medication or suicide, for that matter. So she's not necessarily the best person to, you know, to critique her, her, her mental state at the time, despite her close relationship. Um, but what occurs to me as somebody who, you know, who studies these things is that both things could be simultaneously true, um, that Marilyn did have uh, problems monitoring her own meds and sometimes took too much, but that's still not to say that that particular day she didn't feel a light, desperate and decide to end her own life. I mean, both, both things could be true. Yeah, it could be true. Um, I think one of the issues with Eunice Murray, and I, I don't think she was a confrontational person, so I, I want to put that on on and uh, you know as a caveat to what I'm saying. But she also was spending the night that night to make sure Marilyn was okay. So the fact mm. that she had the warning, she even said what she said, and yet okay. didn't really check on her is unbelievably negligent to me, not on purpose, not intentional, but at the same time, it's like, you know, and, and under the care um, was hired by Dr. Greenson, her, her psych, um, psychiatrist. So, you know, you, you look at these things and in, in, in of, of, of themselves, one thing doesn't make an accountability, but when you look at this vortex that has been surrounding her, and I'm not saying Marilyn doesn't have any responsibility, but uh, mm-hmm. just the fact that what was going on that day and that night, um, to say that she, you know, probable suicide, possibly, but we don't know for sure. Uh, so mm-hmm. I know the panel has a question for you. Mary Jane, you wanted to ask uh, Dr. Bond something as well. Yes, I did. Hi, Dr. Bond. Um, I'm sure studying criminology, you're familiar with um, the studies indicating frontal lobe damage in a number mm-hmm. of uh, prison inmates. Um, mm-hmm. Marilyn's uh, psychiatrist, Dr. Greenson, sustained an injury when he was in the military, and his medical records show that he suffered frontal lobe damage. Um, his records show he was unconscious, had several days of amnesia, um, permanent facial nerve damage, lost reflexes, had seizures. Do you think that his brain injury would have had any subsequent negative effects on his treatment of Marilyn? Well, I, I'm aware of the, the research that you're, that you're describing, and um, there have been a lot of studies uh, uh, linking um, uh, brain trauma and uh, uh, violence or, or, or aggressive behavior, and it's possible, you know, that there's, you know, there's some uh, that there's a, a factor there. But it, but it, but the studies are really very much inconclusive, and it's it's what we we call a spurious relationship. There's probably a lot of other things going on there, and and you know, for for example, um, one of the one of the um, most infamous cases. Um, involving brain trauma and murder was that of John Wayne Gacy, the, uh, the so-called killer clown, serial killer who killed almost 30 uh, men. He had severe brain trauma as a, as a child and, and had similar uh, manifestations and, and uh, uh, problems. And upon his, his uh, uh, execution, they did an autopsy afterward on his, on his brain 
to see if there were any signs of, of uh, trauma um, or any abnormalities, and they weren't able to find, able to find anything at all. So um, uh, I, I, I understand your point, and it's possible, but, but, but the evidence is really uh, inconclusive. All right. Well, there you have it. Uh, and uh, Gary, you have a question also uh, for Dr. Bond. Yes. Hi, Dr. Bond. I wanted to ask your opinion regarding Marilyn's possible diagnosis related to her being at high risk for an impulsive suicide. And I have to preface my question with my belief that she not only had symptoms consistent with borderline personality disorder, but she also seemed to be somewhere on the bipolar spectrum during an mm-hmm. era when there was no mood-stabilizing drugs. So, you know, we, knew, we know about her episodes of major depression, but could it be possibly at this point in her life she was experiencing either a hypomanic, a manic, or a mixed episode? And I say that because, you know, Dr. Greenson and others described not just the depression, but the irritability, the impulsiveness, the racing thoughts, and this great inability to sleep that, that haunted her for so many years. Do you kind of see this possibly related to the bipolarity or the hypomanic or, or, or possible mixed episode? Yeah, I, I definitely understand your question. And um, although I'm, you know, I'm not a, a psychiatrist um, um, or a, you know, or a medical expert um, in, you know, in bipolar disorders and that sort of thing, I, I would say from a you know, simply from a from a pathological standpoint and, and even a criminological standpoint, that 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 the, the mania that you're talking about can can definitely lead to um, extreme behavior. And uh, I mean, I had a, a situation in my own life, uh, someone very very close to me who committed suicide, and she was very much uh, uh, susceptible to bouts of of mania, and in a, you know, in a manic state. One can come to think that there's just no way out, that, 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 the, that you're in a pit that is just absolutely um, uh, limitless and, and that there's absolutely no hope. And, and that is one of the driving forces of, of, of suicide, when one thinks that, that there's just no escape from, from a, uh, what seems to be an eternal um, uh, 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 hell, you know. So I, think, I, I definitely think there could be some credence to what you're saying. Thank you, Dr. Bond. All right. Is there anything else? Uh, does the panel have any other questions for Dr. Bond before we let him on his merry way here for a, a Friday afternoon? Uh, anybody else? And and uh, if so, jump in. If not, uh, Dr. Bond, we are going to uh, continue our, our work together over the coming months leading up to the investigation, of course. And uh, thank you for your insights, especially around the doctors and what's going on and shedding some light on, on all the sides of the issue, not only with the doctors, but uh, also uh, giving us a little insight into uh, Dr. Greenson and Mania and uh, looking forward to having you back with us in a couple of months. Absolutely. Thanks again. And it's uh, always nice to be here. All right, great. That was Dr. Scott Bond. He's on our uh, real-life investigation team. He's a criminologist and uh, suicide expert. Uh, he works and is a professor at Drew University and is a media expert. They call on him uh, a lot of the time to talk about certain cases and uh, can give us some insight. So we have the panel. Finally, we're getting to uh, kind of more of the meat and potatoes of what we were talking about uh, last week, but it all correlates in regards 
regards to what is going on with the doctors, her medication, the suicide prevention team, Mm -hmm. and we could really uh, look at this a little bit more uh, specifically. So with that said, um, we also have April... um, Via Via with us, and I asked her to specifically uh, bring up the celebrity deaths and what their mm-hmm. actual autopsy um, report said. Was it, uh, you know, was it suicide? Was it accidental? Was it undetermined? April, are you there? Yes, I am, Nina. Uh, so, April, tell us uh, what you found in the celebrity deaths and the autopsy reports. What were they labeled as? Um, well, I obviously looked up a few. Um, the first one was Whitney Houston. Her death was labeled an accident. Um, the next was Philip Seymour Hoffman, and his was labeled an accident. Um, Anna Nicole Smith was labeled an accident. Michael Jackson was labeled murder because he, um, the drugs that killed him were not administered by him. Um, Heath Ledger was uh, the last one I looked up, and he was also labeled an accident. Okay, so here we are. We have all these celebrity deaths and their accidents, okay? And, you know, some people say, well, it's probable. They didn't say actual suicide. But the reality of, of, of everything that we've been talking about over the, you know, not only the weeks but the months, uh, really talked to uh, Marilyn whether or not she actually took her life that day. And what Gary brought up with uh, Dr. Bond and asking that, because that all plays a really important part in terms of the ingredients in the vortex that was happening or not happening that day. And we're going to have Dr. uh, Reef Kareem, who is a well-known psychiatrist and who's also in our real-life investigation talking about this as well. So what I'd like to do is bring the panel back. Um, We've got I can't believe it. We've got to take a short break and uh, we'll start and drill down what really is going on with the medications, with the doctors, and why was Marilyn uh, deemed probable suicide when no other celebrity death has ever been called a probable suicide? Not only celebrity, but person, according to Dr. Cyril Weck. We'll be back in just a moment as we continue the conversation. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. You'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. The Voice America Live Events page is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events 
to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Goodnight Maryland Radio. Help us explore the mystery that is and was Marilyn Monroe. Call into our program at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. You may also send an email to MarilynLiveTalk at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's show. All right, everybody, welcome back to Goodnight Maryland Radio. We're talking about celebrities, Maryland, and the doctors and their responsibility or not in terms of her death. This week's uh, Life Bites. You're going to love this one. I think I'm going to keep it just really simple. I'm just going to read the quote because we have so much to go through. It is uh, by Molière, uh, Molière, and it is, it is not only for what we do that we are held responsible, but also for what we do not do. I'm going to leave it on that note so we can continue the conversation here. Uh, with me is April Via Via, who uh, was talking about uh, the suicide, um, uh, the uh, the uh, autopsy reports and the celebrities, and if they were deemed a suicide or accidental, as we heard in the last segment, they were deemed and labeled an accidental death. Accidental death. No other celebrity has been labeled uh, probable suicide. We have uh, Mary Jane Gray. Leslie Kasperowitz from Immortal Maryland and Gary Vitaka Robles from who is a best-selling author of Icon the Lifetimes and Films of Marilyn Monroe. So with that said, um, April you were talking about the c- celebrity deaths and what they were labeled, but we were talking about probable suicide and you actually have a report from the LA Times. What does that say? Um it's actually very interesting. Um, it starts off by saying that, obviously, it was declared probable suicide, and um, Theodore Kersey came out and said the reason that they listed it as probable suicide instead of just flat-out suicide was her lack of a suicide note. And um, they took a lot of factors into considering whether they were going to do accidental or suicide, um, but the main one was her past pattern um, of trying to commit suicide. And they believe that she tried to make a call for help at that time and that it wasn't answered. And then they also thought the amount of medication that she took indicated suicide as well as um, her locked door being unusual. And um, that she had just filled the Nemutol the day before this and they believed that she was planning her suicide to take it. And that's why she got filled. (laughs) You know, it's interesting if you remember what Dr. Lippman said. Uh, he said, I speculate, okay? I speculate. So unless you you are sure about something, I just, I, I know her, you know, past behavior sometimes predicts, uh, you know, current behavior, so I'm not going to negate that. But again, we wouldn't be talking about it 53 plus years later if we were that sure. 
And so, you know, it's almost like if all of a sudden we were to label uh, Whitney Houston's a probable suicide. Um, I'm sure her family and friends would be in an uproar, not saying that she doesn't have an accountability in the fact that she was taking very high-level drugs. But just think about it. If we start applying it, probable suicide to to the other celebrities, I'm sure that the friends and family and fans of, of those famous people would uh, not be okay with it let alone the average person that may be deemed a probable suicide and you don't quite know. So, uh, Gary, you've done a lot of research in your book uh, about the suicide prevention team um, and, you know, really looking at her suicide attempts. So tell us a little bit about the reality of what those suicide attempts are and when they happened. Well, Seymour Corman was a writer for the Chicago Tribune, And he published an article on August 7th, the day before Marilyn's funeral, and he said that the suicide prevention team had reports that said Marilyn had tried to kill herself at least four times before, and it's specific, three times by overdoses of pills and once by turning on the gas in her apartment. But none of these were clearly detailed, and when the suicide prevention team had the press conference a few weeks later, they would not disclose Marilyn's personal health information. The press asked very specific questions about when was this, where did this occur. Um, But I know Norman Farborough took that question, and he would not provide details. Um, So those are four attempts that they were aware of, and they they not only interviewed Greenson, um, Engelberg, and Lou Siegel, but they also interviewed several psychiatrists on the team at Payne Whitney Hospital where Marilyn had been uh, hospitalized about 18 months before. So in in researching ICON, I was able to um, unearth several attempts, and I don't know how they overlap into these four. But the first one goes back to possibly an attempt and a gesture during the Christmas time of 1950, and this was after Marilyn's agent and partner, Johnny Hyde, died and she was grieving. And so Natasha Lightess, her coach at the time, wrote in an unpublished memoir that she came home about five minutes, five hours earlier than expected, so Marilyn didn't expect her back so soon. And she found a note on the front door um, with Marilyn willing to Natasha the mink coat that that Hyde had given her. And so when Natasha went into the home, there was another note on the bedroom door advising Natasha's daughter not to enter. So when Natasha entered, she found Marilyn unconscious and like a purplish gelatin dripping from her mouth. So it appeared that Marilyn had swallowed some of the pills but held some of them in her mouth. Um, Natasha doesn't state if if she needed medical intervention um, and if, if this was indeed an attempt or a gesture. The second one that I was able to determine comes from Arthur Miller in his book Time Bends. He writes that sometime after Marilyn's miscarriage, which would have been August of 57, he found her collapsed in a chair with labored breathing and that she had overdosed and he summoned help and her stomach needed to be pumped. And Susan Strasberg later wrote that Marilyn was very grateful to Miller for having saved her. Norman Rostin, her poet friend, wrote in his memoir that uh, of of an intentional overdose in which a private doctor pumped her stomach. 
He's not very specific. It could be the same one that Miller discussed, but possibly not. And in, in Roston's account, he and his wife go to Maryland the next day, and she's very depressed, and she's cursing the doctors for having brought her back. And so when Marilyn was um, hospitalized at Payne Whitney, um, she writes in a detailed letter to Greenson that she did break the glass in her door and threatened to cut herself with a shard of glass if they didn't release her. Um, and then when she was transferred over to Columbia Presbyterian, she actually wrote this letter to Greenson, and she references in the letter an intentional overdose of 10 secanol and 10 tuanol. And it's, again, it's unclear if she's referencing the Norman Roston one or the Miller one, but, but the quote in the letter is, remember when I tried to do away with myself, I did it very carefully with 10 secanol and 10 tuanol and swallowed them with relief. That's how I felt at the time. And wow. There's two, there's two more after this. One is, in February of 61, after she divorced Miller, what actually led to her involuntary admission at Payne Whitney was that she had impulses to jump from the 13th floor apartment window. And this comes from Ralph Roberts, who's quoted in Fred Lawrence Giles' book, and this led to Marianne Chris um, doing the involuntary commitment. The last one, the turning on the gas in the apartment, I have no reference to that for a location or a time frame. And so we don't know exactly if that's true or if that's just a rumor. Is that correct? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So, you know, my take on what the suicide prevention team heard was, you know, a very high risk given her, her, her psychiatric history, her history of trauma, her substance use issues, her family history of mental illness, her family history of, of suicide. I mean, they, they factored all of that information into account um, not really considering the fact that she was handed the loaded gun with the lethal supply of medicines. It seems like all of this uh, took the spotlight and the prescribing practices of the doctors did not. Well, and, and here's a, a very important, interesting point that you're making in just about all of these, the first and the second attempt. Um, uh, Hyde dies she uh, attempts suicide, and Arthur Miller, in terms of her pregnancy, um, there is a specific reason that's causing this uh, kind of uh, wanting to end it all. Uh, if you talk to people that were around Marilyn the last few days of her life, there wasn't a, a significant, that we know of, uh, that we can prove, significant issue happening that would cause that, with the exception of what you were talking with Dr. Bond in terms of her, her mental health condition, which if, if she was in a manic or mania, could she have done this impulsively? Um, I find it very interesting, too, Gary, that you said that she very carefully did 10, uh, 10 of each, and yet in, the, in her, um, uh, if she did indeed take her own life, she took basically you know, up to 47 nebutol and also chloral hydrate. It seems a little bit on a kind of over the top, um, given the fact that she, she knew exactly what she was doing in terms of um, knowing what the medication can and cannot do. At least that's, that's uh, what I'm speculating. Yes, and, and you know, and if it was truly maybe more of a symptom of her borderline personality disorder, you know, I wonder if she 
if she was just unable to express pain or wanting to reduce pain and, and then reached out for help, which is, which is very common with people who suffer from that diagnosis and was hoping that she would be rescued, but unfortunately maybe reached for help when she really couldn't communicate it. I, I know that there was the phone call to Ralph Roberts' answering service, and the woman who took that call couldn't quite make any sense of what Marilyn was saying. Um, All right. Well, we have a just uh, we have a call uh, caller. I think Davy's on the on the line. He's been holding quite a long time for us. I know you have a question for us, Davy. Hi, welcome to the show. Oh, hi, Nina. Yeah, hi everyone. Thanks again so much. And I'm I'm gonna make it quick because I know you guys are on a time crunch. <laughs> um, but I was just wondering, you know, regarding Marilyn's half sister Bernice. You know, we're we're on we're. Basically, why didn't she push the investigation, or maybe she did, but I'm not, you know, aware of it, um, really because she was the most sane living family member of Maryland's. Um, so why did, did, did she push the investigation after Maryland's death? That's a great question. Uh, Leslie, yeah, Leslie, do you want to answer that? Um. <clears throat> I think that this death, well, it was obviously a very big deal at the time. If you look at the newspaper articles, it was really, really well discussed. And even though we say that the the finger wasn't pointed at the doctors, I think that it actually was somewhat. Um, And why they didn't investigate it further uh, is kind of, well, I guess why we're still here. Had they investigated this properly and thoroughly, I don't think we'd be having this conversation right now. Um, <laughs> so I think it was it was a difficult situation for them having not really dealt with this kind of um, celebrity death before. Um, and I'm not sure that they quite knew how to approach it. And so I think that they did take kind of a different approach. Um, but it's interesting to me that you never see this approach really used again in celebrity deaths that followed. So, so you know, Bernice, how or why they um, investigated the way they did is kind of a big open question to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we yeah. have to, we actually have to close out this week's show. So Davey, uh, we'll try to uh, continue the conversation next next week as we, we do explore the investigation a little bit more in terms of the medications. We're going to be talking about how the body was found and the repositioning. Could we uh, had some questions about that. Uh, you know, if she was in the nude, which should we say that? Why didn't she have a bra or a nightgown? There was no mention to that. So we have a lot of things to cover, especially with the pills, the amount of pills. So, uh, closing thoughts, um, just a few seconds, Mary Jane. Uh, closing thoughts are, I think we need to just keep delving deeper into why they uh, conducted the investigation the way they did and why certain people who should have been held accountable weren't. Okay, Gary. There's plenty of information about doctor culpability, and I think we need to tease through that with a fine-tooth comb. April? Um, I just really mirror everyone else's sentiments. I think there's still a lot that we can uncover, and I think we will. All right. And Leslie? Uh, I guess my closing thoughts is that at this point, I think we really need to be looking at the prescriptions and where they were coming from and who knew about them. 
All right. So next week, we're going to continue the conversation on really what were the medications, how many she was really prescribed. We'll talk about as we break it down in the DA report about the suicide prevention team and how some of the information just isn't adding up. And for those of you who are emailing me saying, what about the other more malice things that could be happening? It's just not this show. We'll get to that. I promise you we'll get to that. We're just breaking down the medication right now and looking at what we do know and then we will get into the other things that might have been happening that day. So on that note, it wraps up another show. We'll continue the conversation on season three next time. I'm Nina Boski for Goodnight Maryland Radio. I'd like to thank my special guest, Dr. Scott Bond. And remember, never stop dreaming. Thank you for joining us for today's show. Good Night Maryland Radio with Nina Bosky can be heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Be sure to tune in again next week.